Well, if the Spirit worked through the ministry of music in the same way He works through the ministry of the Word, we could go home. Um, But as it is, would you join me in your copy of God's Word in Acts 20, verse 21. We're looking at uh, this one verse. Paul is speaking with the Ephesian elders in their final meeting. He's telling them a number of things that we'll continue to look at in the weeks to come. But we've stopped to camp out in verse 21. In verse 21, Paul makes the statement. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of two things. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are with us last week, you know that I believed it was profitable to spend the entire sermon on repentance toward God. And this week, we will look at the other side of that coin, which is faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's how I'd like to introduce saving faith to you. I want you to imagine in your mind a frozen lake I don't know if, how many of you have ever walked on or skated on or fished on a frozen lake. It doesn't happen very often in northeast Mississippi. I remember a couple of years ago, the pond in my neighborhood froze over, and a kid on a four-wheeler thought it would be a good idea to ride the four-wheeler on the pond. It didn't end well. He was safe but wet. And then, of course, an army of good old boys showed up. They were so excited to pull that four-wheeler out. Don't think about Mississippi frozen ponds. Rather, think about other parts of the nation. Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, areas in the Midwest. You know, Molly and I visited... My cousin married a girl from Wisconsin, and he lived there for a number of years, and we went up there in 2018 to go visit him. I think Louie was nine months old at the time, and we got the full Midwest winter experience. I got to shovel snow off the driveway. I was really excited about it. I'd never done that before. Uh, I... Uh, we, we drove to church in six inches of fresh powder, and everyone was there. It wasn't a big deal. It was just normal. And we also went to the city park, and there was a lake in the park, which was completely frozen over, and we were able to ice skate. And so we rented skates, and Molly and I are out there, and we borrowed a jogging stroller from my cousin and stuck Luvi in the stroller and wrapped her up really tight in a bundle and I'll say that that's a good tip. If, if you're ever ice skating and you aren't sure on your feet, holding on to a jogging stroller really does help. And we have pictures of this. But this is, this is the image. Me and Molly and our nine-month-old daughter in a stroller out in the middle of a frozen lake. I want you to keep that image in mind as we look at faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we define our terms, let's, let's pray. Father God, we remember 
how you work in and build up your people. And we remember that it is through the simple means of an imperfect man standing before your people and preaching your word. And so I ask that you would work not for my sake, but for your sake and honor and for the benefit and help of your people. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're having an excursus on faith this morning. We need to begin by defining what faith is. A lot of times when this word is used, it's used with a definite article in front of it. Definite article is a fancy grammatical word for the. And so often we think of the faith, the Christian faith, those elements of the Apostles' Creed that we'll recite in worship. Or I was reminded of Jude, who's exhorting believers to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith against those who would pervert the grace of God or deny the Lord Jesus Christ. That use of this word is not what we're talking about this morning. What we're going to talk about this morning is what our confession calls saving faith. Or what Paul says in verse 21, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I I worked on defining that, and there's a lot of things I was looking at. I'll I'll say that it's the simple, most clarifying thing is always to quote a catechism when possible. It was that way when I was going through ordination, and it remains the safest, uh, clearest, most concise way. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. That's your definition. Faith in Jesus Christ. Saving faith is a grace whereby we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. I don't know if you remember last week, we left off quoting a theologian who was recalling the parable of the lost son. We'll know it as the parable of the prodigal son. And he commented and said that when when the lost son has finally come to his senses and he's made this decision that he's going to return home, he says, he develops his plan and he says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And this this theologian notes, he says, he takes the name of Father upon his lips even when he is still far from him. He dares to go to the Father and confess his sins before his face because in the depths of his heart, he believes that the Father is his Father. What is that? That, that, that lost son believing that he can go and be honest because the father is his father. That would be saving faith. If we didn't believe that, we should never turn around. If we do not trust 
that he will accept our confession and forgive us. We should never turn around. But as it is, the son returned home. That's another example of what we're talking about. There's, of course, the turning from sin, which is repentance. And then there's this lost son saying, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go home and I'm going to stand before my father and be honest and confess the things I've done wrong and the ways that I've sinned against him. And I can do so boldly because my soul trusts that God is my father. And because of what his son has done for me, I need not fear judgment and condemnation. That inner trust, that confidence of the soul in a hope that is outside of ourselves is saving faith. So the Catechism defines this as a grace. If it's a grace, that means it's something that we are freely given that we do not deserve. Now, last week when we were talking about repentance, before we talked about repentance, we also talked about uh, regeneration. That's, that's how we began, and it's the same idea this week. Again, God acts. God brings a person who is spiritually dead back to life, and as a consequence, they are able not only to repent, but also to believe. Remember Paul in Ephesians 2, he says, You were dead. In trespasses and sins. You are following the course of this unbelieving world. You are following the prince of the unseen realm. The prince of the power of the air. But God who is rich in mercy made you alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he says, and just in case you want to boast about your salvation you need to know that it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that you cannot boast. So saving faith is a grace. It's a fruit of being born again. But who, who does this work in us? Who is the one that changes the disposition of our heart? Our heart would be the Holy Spirit. Uh, the scriptures actually refer to him on several occasions as the spirit of faith. That capitalized S should remind you that this is not our faith. This is the Holy Spirit doing this work. And how does he do it? What's the process like? Is it, you know, on Christmas when you're a kid, you go to bed and you wake up and then these incredible gifts just appear in your house, right? I mean, is that, is that how this is? We, we go to sleep one night. And we wake up and boom, during the night, the Spirit left saving faith. Or maybe we just need to get out in in nature, in God's creation, somewhere where it's quiet and we can hear that still, small voice. And there in the woods we're given saving faith. Or do we just need to find our way to a library and read and learn and explore until... We stumble upon it. Paul tells us how the saving faith comes to us. He does so in in Romans 10. And I love God's providence. Our assurance of pardon is where we'll begin. 
In Romans 10, 13 through 17, Paul writes, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So let's put that in reverse. A minister is sent. A minister preaches. The people hear. The people believe. The people call on Jesus. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is how the Spirit ordinarily works this saving faith into our hearts. Through the ministry of the Word. Through what we're doing right now. Now, have you ever wondered why we have a 30 to 40 minute sermon every time we gather as a church to worship? I mean, why, why couldn't we just gather and pray some Sundays? Why couldn't we just gather and sing hymns and psalms for the entire service? Or why not just gather and speak with one another and fellowship and encourage one another and catch up? Why do you sit and listen to me preach a sermon every Sunday? I don't do it because I love to hear myself talk. And I don't do it because I'm some guru. Most of you are smarter than I am. Most of you probably have a higher ACT score than me. You aren't listening to me because of my brilliant intellect. You aren't listening to me because of my masterful delivery. I am no Paul Harvey. So why do we do this? Why is it almost half our service? Because the ministry of the word is used by the Spirit to work saving faith in us. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes through the word of Christ. And you can say, well, I can, I can just stay at home to do that. You can't. You can't. It's not enough to stay at home. I know you can listen to sermons, and there are so many good ones out there that you have on your phone and you can listen to. They're at the tip of your finger. They can be incredibly edifying and encouraging, and we can learn so much, but those cannot replace the church gathered on the Lord's Day to sit under the ministry of the Word. You know, Thomas Goodwin, he's commenting on the good books and conversations we can have with other believers that can be so helpful in times of spiritual drought. But he says, if we only use those and we neglect the gathering with the saints for worship and preaching. He says it's akin to relying on watering pots instead of rain. 
This is how faith comes to us. The saints gather together on the Lord's day to worship God. And as the word is preached, the spirit works to give you faith or to strengthen your faith. And the power is all his. It is not mine. I mean, I I could try to study different speaking techniques to make myself sound more like Paul Harvey. Or to experiment with different ways to, to move an audience. Maybe I could... Maybe I could be really persuasive one day and get you to raise your hand or come down front. But I cannot change the disposition of your soul. I get to go down a fun rabbit trail here. I've been wanting to go down for a while. Have you ever wondered why we don't do altar calls here? Maybe maybe some of you are, are new or you haven't been coming for that long and you've kind of been thinking, is is it... Is, it, is he going to do one? Is it coming? Maybe you've been here for a while and you're like, I've been here five years. I've been here ten years and not once has John done an altar call. You wonder why? Well, I'll tell you. So, brief history. The altar call began to be widely practiced during the early to mid-1800s. So it is very new. And it is also very American. It began to be widely practiced in what was known as the Second Great Awakening. There was an evangelist named Charles Finney. I don't, I don't know. I'm just... I'm confused how... He was so influential. Like, if you Google a picture of Charles Finney, he's terrifying. His, his, he's got some wild eyes. Maybe that's what worked. I don't, I don't know. He's terrifying. But he would use the altar call as a coercive technique to influence a person to make a decision for Christ. Now, this is how he theologically got there. He believed that people were morally neutral. People were born morally neutral. And so his job was to push them in the right direction. There might be some obstacles and some hindrances, but if he used the proper techniques and methods and was really convincing, he could produce revival. And the altar call was one of those techniques. But historic Christian teaching disagrees with Finney's beliefs. Man is not morally neutral. Man is radically and terribly sinful. Man is totally depraved. Not meaning that we are as bad as we could possibly be. Thanks be to God, we are not. But there is not one aspect of us, mind, body, will, that is not tainted by sin. And if this is going to be overcome, we need something more than a a coercive preacher with wild eyes. We need the Spirit working through 
the word to break down our resistance to God and his gospel. You know, the, the message that we pastors preach every Sunday it is not reasonable to the unbelieving mind. The faith that we profess and affirm when we say a statement like the Apostles' Creed is not reasonable to the unbelieving world or the unconverted mind. And so it doesn't matter how passionate I am. It doesn't matter how proficient I am or prepared I am. I cannot overcome a hardened, unbelieving heart. But my duty is to speak as clear as possible the gospel message and pray that the Spirit will work through it to grant new life. I mean, just thinking back about the altar call, like how many times have you thought, what is wrong with me? How many of these is it going to take for my faith to take? You know, I responded to the call that brother so-and-so gave. I went down front, I praised, I raised my hand, I rededicated my life, and then I went home and fell into the same old sin. He was so moving, the lighting was perfect, I was emotional. Then I got home and fell off the wagon. This is why we don't do altar calls. Because I know that I cannot produce faith in your heart. That work is left to the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. He is the only one who can penetrate the soul and change the human heart and make that change last. The good work he began in you, he will complete. And so instead of putting your assurance in those one-time emotional experiences, I would like to recommend a better option. It's not fancy or flashy. It's not complicated. It's simply this. Show up for worship on the Lord's Day to worship with the saints. If you haven't been baptized, talk with me and we can make that happen. If you're baptized as a child, don't talk to me. I don't rebaptize. You're good. <laughs> Partake in the Lord's Supper. Sit under preaching. Pray. Talk to God. Spend time in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is how God grows his people. This is how he overcomes the world. This is how he strengthens and matures us. If we will do this consistently, your faith will be strengthened. You remember Naaman from the Old Testament? He was a commander of the Syrian army. He's described as a great man, a mighty man of valor. But he had a problem. He had leprosy. And in time, the leprosy would take his life. Well, in God's providence, there was a little slave girl who worked for Naaman's wife. And this slave girl was from Israel. And she made a comment to Naaman's wife, and she says, Oh, there's a prophet in Samaria. His name is 
Elisha. And if only your husband could go to him, he could cure him of his leprosy. So to make a long story short, Naaman gets this message. He goes to Elisha. And what does Elisha prescribe? Remember? He says, go down to the Jordan River and wash yourself seven times. And your flesh shall be restored and you will be clean. What's Naaman do? He gets angry. What? That's it? Go down to that muddy river and wash myself seven times? We aren't going to sacrifice a dozen bulls or you aren't going to wave your hands and do something magical? or I mean, at least... Not the Jordan. I know of nicer, cleaner rivers I could go to. This makes him angry. But then his servants encourage him. Listen to the prophet. And trust in these simple ways. And he does. And his flesh is restored and made clean. Now how often... Are we like Naaman, where we want some special, meaningful experience, some glorious mountaintop experience to increase our faith? And we're offended when a hairy preacher tells you to just show up for worship and sing and pray and sit under the preaching of the word. These simple things God uses to grow and strengthen our faith. Don't despise these things because they're simple. They are the very things that God has prescribed. That's why we have this sermon every Sunday, because the Spirit works through it. So saving faith is a grace worked in our hearts by the Spirit through the ordinary means that God has prescribed But faith has to be in something. And here's kind of a turn in the sermon where I'm going to get back to my illustration of the frozen ice. Your faith has to have an object. When I was in Wisconsin, my cousin convinced me that it was safe for me and Molly to go out on the ice and for us to take our nine-month-old in a stroller out on the ice. And I believed him. I saw everyone out skating and playing, and it was really, really cold. <laughs> like, this is safe. Important question. Were those strong beliefs, the assurance of how cold it was, is that what kept me safely out of the water? What kept me and Molly and Luvi and everyone else, what kept us safely out of the water. It was the ice. It was the strength and the thickness of the ice that kept us safe. I could have been fearless like those Midwesterners out playing hockey over deep water without a worry in the world. Or I could have been a Southerner out of his comfort zone gingerly, cautiously easing out onto the ice Nervously wincing every time I heard it crack or pop. But my, those levels of confidence were not 
what kept me safe. What kept me safe was the thickness of the ice under my feet. So I'm, I'm going to say something that initially may sound wrong to you, but it's not. And it's this. Your faith does not save you. Your faith does not save you. What does save you is the object of your faith. Which we profess as the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll hear people say, I'm a person of faith. Or you've got to keep the faith. Well, the next question would be, you're a person of faith in who? You've got to keep the faith in what? Because faith is simply an instrument. We are not saved by faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith was the instrument that got me out on that frozen lake, but the thing that held me fast wasn't my faith. It was the ice. So in the same way, Faith will cause you to believe that there is salvation and forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with a holy God. But that faith isn't what saves. What saves is the object of that faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. I can be a person of great faith. And I can put my trust in thin Mississippi ice. And disaster can happen. It's not the strength or sincerity of our faith that saves us. It is the object of our faith. I've got one more illustration. I hope, I hope this is helpful. I had the picture in my mind of a small boat. Imagine you're in a kayak or canoe. You're going down a river that's moving pretty swiftly. And there's a waterfall in the distance. A waterfall that would be deadly for you to go over in this canoe. You also have a rope. That rope is a great rope, a strong rope. You've taken good care of it, and that rope, half of one end is tied to your boat, the other end is in your hand. Now, if you simply hold on to that rope in your hands and trust in it to keep you safe, you're going to go over those falls. Instead, what you have to do with that rope is to use it as an instrument and take hold of something greater and stronger than yourself. Maybe there's a steel I-beam supporting a bridge in the middle of the river that you could swing that rope around. We're reminded that what saves us is not the faith. It isn't the rope. What saves us is the object of uh, the object that anchors us. And so in what or whom is your, place, your faith placed? What are you tying off to? What are you standing on? That object really matters. It, and it must be the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. I mean, you'll, you'll hear someone say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That's nonsense. That's like saying, you know, take your rope and tie it around any little twig or any dead stump and you'll be safe. 
The object of your faith matters very much. This object is something that we receive and rest upon alone for our salvation. Y'all remember the evangelism explosion questions from the 1980s? I think they're really helpful here in helping us identify the object of our faith. The first one is, do you know for sure that you will go to heaven one day? And depending on the answer, you'll say, how? Why? And then there's a follow-up question that says, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? I mean, those are very revealing. And what is the object of your faith? What are you standing on? What are you resting in? I'm here to remind you that there is only one correct answer. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would you be led into his heaven? Because of Jesus. Because he has washed me. He has cleansed me. I can do nothing to save myself from the wrath and curse of sin that I deserve. I can only look to and trust in and place my hope in him. He is that immovable object my rope has grabbed hold of. He is the thick ice upon which I stand. Any faith that saves is faith that relies solely on and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got a Spurgeon quote to wrap up. He says, My hope does not live because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My hope is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, He is my righteousness. My faith does not rest upon what I am, or shall be, or feel, or know, but in what Christ is, in what He has done, and in what He is doing for me now. We, see, we will see this in the hymn that we're about to sing and close with. This object of our faith that we will look to as our only hope. And I'd like to read the first stanza with you. You can look at it in your bulletin. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Read along with me as I read that first verse. This is, this is what we're getting at when we're talking about saving faith and receiving and resting upon the Lord Jesus alone for salvation. It says, What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more that heaven now for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, and freedom. My steadfast love and deep, boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray.
Father God, I ask you that by the working of your spirit, you would produce faith in the hearts where there is none, and that you would strengthen faith that is weak or timid. How wonderful it is to remember that you are the author of our faith and also the perfecter of our faith. What you have begun in us, you will complete. The simple action of a sinner crying out, Lord, have mercy on me, and looking to Christ is enough. And you will grow that faith and strengthen it until you bring us home to be with yourself. And faith becomes sight. And prayer becomes praise. Father, would you continue your work of regeneration and restoration and reconciliation in the lives of your people? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.